This is Archive Atlanta, episode 147, Grave Robbing Replay. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So if you're listening to this in real time, Halloween is this weekend. So I wanted to replay my Halloween episode from last year, which was with my friend and fellow podcaster, Liz Clappett. She's an architectural historian in Atlanta. She's the smartest person I know. She's definitely the wittiest. And her podcast is really good. Tomb with a View is centered on U.S. cemetery history. But I tell everyone this, you will learn so much more than just cemetery stuff. It's really a way to look at all the history, you know, from the starting point or through the lens of our burial traditions. So if you didn't get to listen to this last year, you're in for a treat. We talked about the history of grave robbing from the earliest start in the country to its start in the state of Georgia. And then I talked about some local incidents that I found from Oakland and from Decatur. So without further ado, enjoy my interview with Liz. Uh, I am Liz Clappen, and I do a podcast here in Atlanta as well. It's called Tomb with a View. Unlike Victoria, I don't just talk about Atlanta. I do talk about all things having to do with cemeteries. The way I've always approached cemeteries is the fact that they are one of the few elements that hopefully doesn't change. And often we can find so much about other parts of society from them because they stay there, uh, hopefully, not always. But also, I've always come at it from, uh, even around Halloween time, that hopefully you will agree with this once you listen to this episode. The real stories are way more fun than the made up horror stories, <laughs> because everything that we're gonna talk about today actually happened. Yes. And it's one of those things that in modern society, we don't always think about, because we are so distanced from death today. And so we picked grave robbing, or body snatching, or we'll talk about the synonyms in, in a second, but understanding people, I think horror movies or plots are based on this, but this was a real thing. So we're going to cover the history of it, why people did this, and then I have found a few incidents of local body snatchings that happened uh, in Atlanta and Indicator, and so we're going to cover all of that today. Uh, but I'm going to lean on Liz here to talk about a lot of the history that I find so fascinating. And so what I want to ask first is, where does this grave robbing thing come from? You know, world, is it a worldwide thing? Like, where did it first start? It's interesting. This is something that is sort of a uniquely Anglo-Saxon thing. Um, often in other parts, particularly of Europe, and I say Europe because obviously in the United States, we are largely a European-based society. You know, Central Europe, um, many parts of Europe had a pretty progressive view of the body. And you can see this going back to the Renaissance. If you think, see things like the Vitruvian Man, the drawings of anatomy, you can certainly see it. Yes, you, you know what I'm talking <laughs> I just, about. I just splayed my <laughs> arms out. <laughs> but even if you look at uh, sort of the Northern Renaissance paintings, there are famously lots of paintings from the Renaissance of anatomy lessons. But for some reason, uh, particularly England, tends to be a little bit more puritanical about it. And so their attitudes about the body being sacred and the body being incorruptible really don't translate after death. But it starts; they start to see very quickly that to be a legitimate medical college, you need to have anatomy lessons. And there was even like this big battle between physicians versus surgeons. Physicians were seen as 
gentlemen. They were the ones that took care of the elites. Whereas surgeons, those were the butchers. Those were the ones that did your amputations. Really? And so it was looked down upon? Very much so. That's so interesting. And this is something that, you know, it's not even, you know, we're talking into the 19th century that this is the main attitude. Studying the dead for the purposes of pathology, to understand the origins of disease, to understand how to do proper surgeries by looking at actual physical remains, it's really controversial. So unfortunately, it's hard to get bodies. Hence body snatching. <laughs> so you're so you're saying people are stealing bodies to perform dissections? Yes. So, okay. Yeah. So generally there's two purposes. First of all, you learn how to do surgeries by doing them on dead people first. But also just to understand the makeup and the physical build of the body. How things work, how things are in relation to each other. That all those sense. things. And so we were talking the earliest stories in America... You were saying New York had riots around this? Yeah, so you have, going back to the colonial period, you have this happen. Um, there was actually a club at Harvard called the Spunker Club, which in the 1770s, you can see them um, body snatching. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, George Washington actually spoke on it, saying that the Hessian and British soldiers were fair game for dissection, um, but to leave the Patriots alone. Oh, that's great. <laughs> um, and then in 1788, there was actually a riot in New York City where students had obtained the body of a white woman from Trinity Church, which Trinity Church is very famous, whereas normally they obtained their dead in other places. And so the rioting started, they went into the basement of the anatomy college, took all of the cadavers out and burned them in the streets, and something like 20 people were killed. Oh my God. So you're saying regular lay people got so upset about yes. this white woman's body being taken that yeah. they broke into the college and burned the cadavers. Yes. You have to understand that the way that the body is perceived has really changed over time. We, I think a lot of people are at least basically familiar with like Victorian mourning culture. And there was this very, very elaborate, you know, if your husband died versus your child versus your parent, like there was a prescribed period of mourning. There were certain things that you could do. There was a real fascination with the body and the decay of the body that was very tied into the religious beliefs of the time. So probably the best example I can think of is Ralph Waldo Emerson when his, he's the famous American transcendentalist, when his wife dies, he talks about how a year later he goes and he opens up her coffin to see the progression of decay. There was this real fascination about like returning to nature and the somewhat grisly decomposition of the body. But people kept things like hair, they kept yeah. mementos, they made jewelry out of hair. There is a fascination with the body where the body is seen as very sacred. And so oh, I see what you're saying. defiling it in any way is really not okay. And so that's the reason that there's so much violence around this. So now Georgia, we were talking about Augusta being the scene of some of the earliest. Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, so here in Atlanta, unfortunately, the medical college history starts a little bit later. Um, we do have two medical colleges here in Georgia, but they don't start until obviously later because Atlanta doesn't have its, its origins till the 1850s. But in Augusta, so the Georgia Medical College is going to be one of the first. It's founded in 1829. And this is really when we see like the height of the debate. And uh, they come up with a very interesting solution for body snatching. Just picture this. So some medical schools, however, may, and the best example I found of this was Baltimore. So Baltimore had six medical schools, about 1,200 students. 
and the amount of legally obtained bodies that you could get was something like 34 a year. So there was a couple of ways you could legally obtain bodies. Executed criminals. This is Baltimore or generally? This is everywhere. Okay. So you could get bodies of executed criminals. You could often get unclaimed indigent dead. Um, so people who were poor, people who died in places like that. And often um, people who died in places like mental asylums and things like that or prisons. But that doesn't account for a lot of bodies, especially when the population is still small. And this is exactly what Augusta starts to suffer. Now they're much smaller than Baltimore. They don't have six medical schools, but even one medical school, if you have 20 or 30 students, are they all going to share one body? Yeah. It's like, who gets to do the heart? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, that, and you're fighting against decomposition too. Embalming doesn't come into its own until really the civil war. So you don't have embalming at this point. Um, Most often you're preserving them in alcohol. I don't know if this is apocryphal, but just a fun fact that they did used to store the bodies in barrels of whiskey, cheap whiskey. (laughs) And they say that that's where the expression rot gut whiskey comes from. Really? Also, the idea of that after you took the body out, you would sell that whiskey. uh, And that's where the term stiff drink comes from. Really? That's fascinating. Like I said, I don't know if that's true (laughs) or if that's just apocryphal. It's a good story, though. It is a good story. All right. So anyways, back to Augusta. I went off on a tangent. Um, But Augusta really comes up with a very interesting solution. And it's one that you see a lot, but not in this sense. The Medical College of Georgia actually purchased a slave named Grandison Harris specifically for the purpose of grave robbing. He was supposed to do the actual digging of the graves. So he did everything. So he acquired the bodies, he preserved them, he laid them out, and then after the dissections were done, he got rid of whatever was left over. He was purchased by the medical college for $700 from Charleston, and then eventually, to keep him happy, they also purchased his wife and child and brought them to Augusta as well. And you said they let him sleep, he slept at the cemetery? Yes, so he he had a spot right there at the cemetery. And essentially I think that the idea was is that he would eventually learn which were the graves that you could rob. And it's important to remember that the majority of bodies that are acquired, and this is not something that just happens here in the United States, they are overwhelmingly poor, they are overwhelmingly people of color. And it varies depending on where you are. Here in the South, obviously, it's going to be black. Um, It's estimated, and they did find the remains of many of the bodies who were used by the medical college. Because Wait, you told me this. What year? In 1991. 1991. (laughs) They did some renovations. (laughs) And they found out he was burying the remains in the basement. um, And he was covering them up with salt pepper to cover up the smell. And they found that the remains were essentially 80% black, mostly black men. Now, in other places, um, so for example, out West, you tend to see that it is more Chinese immigrants, for example. Um, It it depends on what part of the country you're in. But these are the people who didn't have anyone to advocate for them. They were often people who were buried in potter's fields. They were very poor. They didn't have markers. Um, Many of them probably didn't even have coffins. They may have just been buried in shrouds. It makes them very expendable. But there's also the argument that, you know, their bodies are doing something positive. And that's eventually what starts to change the attitudes about grave robbing. So this guy, at least in Augusta, his job was to steal the bodies. Yes. Did other cities do this or other places have specific people? I mean, so when I was researching Atlanta, I saw that 
from what I've gathered, there were people who did this, like they moonlighted as grave robbers and medical students would pay them to do it as opposed to them doing it themselves. Absolutely. So these people, they have a lot of different names. One of the terms I come across most often is resurrection men. I like that one. (laughs) Um, Or resurrectionists. Um, But, you know, some people call them ghouls. They, They have a lot of different names. And often these are people who they have a number of different jobs. Um, I read an account in New York City where a lot of times they were cart drivers, so they already owned a cart, so they could easily transport remains. They may have been, you know, people who didn't have a lot of other options. Of course, probably the most famous people in the world of body snatching are the two famous Irish immigrants, Burke and Hare, uh, who sort of terrorized Edinburgh, Scotland in the 1820s. Burke, of course, was eventually executed and in one of the great ironies of body snatching, after he was executed, his body went to the medical college <laughs> and his skeleton is still on display at the University of Edinburgh today. Really? I, Atlanta has a sort of a similar ironic story, but this brings me to the question. So we talked about this earlier, but not on, not on tape. How did they do this? Because my question was, wow, who is digging six feet into the ground? You know, how are they prying these caskets open? But you've taught me that nobody's buried six feet under the ground. <laughs> Very uncommon. Um, So there are certain places that are far more attractive for body snatching. Uh, I already brought up Baltimore. Baltimore was definitely the body snatching capital of the United States because the more temperate the climate, the more time out of the year that you can dig it up. Baltimore was also attractive because the B&O Railroad is, the Baltimore and Ohio, is one of the earlier railroads. And so they are shipping bodies and there are records of this as far west as St. Louis and as far south as Atlanta. So, okay, so this ties in, in my local research. Um, I learned that it was a lot of colleges got bodies from other states to sort of avoid prosecution. They had bodies available here, but they would buy them from a neighboring state and they would just sort of swap to prevent themselves from getting in trouble, I guess. But my my yeah. train story mm-hmm. cracked me up. There was someone basically in Chattanooga trying to ship bodies and they would ship them freight, label them like rice or grain or something. And then just, they happened to weigh like 170 pounds. <laughs> like the, the weight of an adult met dead male. Um, and there was a... There was, gosh, I got to find the guy now, but he, he was shipping it to Dr. Pemberton, who, if I don't know if you know the name, sounds familiar, but he invented the Coca-Cola formula. Um, he actually ended up selling it to Candler and the other investors, but that, but you know, he was a, he was a pharmacist. So, so, so you're telling me Coca-Cola is really soil and green. You, it's never, you never know. But I mean, that struck with me where I was like, okay, so Dr. Pemberton's receiving bodies and. It just got into a story of how the the, the freight train um, you know, operator basically caught this because they all weighed 180 pounds and the description kept changing. So, <laughs> the, you know, he tried to label it fish and he's like, yeah, I don't think this is fish. Anyway. That's a big fish. That's, but that's really interesting. So temperature of, of the climate because soil. And, and also train. a lot of it has to do too with soil composition because depending on... If you have very acidic soil, for example, it's going to actually break down bodies faster. Now, granted, all of these bodies are being dug up very, very quickly. But I have seen accounts where, you know, they'll dig up one grave that's fresh and the grave next to it is six months old. And the person next to them will definitely be too decomposed to use for a dissection, but you can use the skeleton. Oh, so they would dig up for skeletons as well. Certainly. Um, And and skeletons, if you ever need to... my undergraduate degree is in anthropology, so I can remember we had a real human skeleton in our anthropology collection um, for study. You can tell that, especially with the older ones, 
it's very clear to see what kind of lifestyle these people lead. Almost always you can see the signs of arthritis on their body. You can tell by their height that they tend to have bad nutrition. All of those, it's very easy oh, to see the type of lives that people lived even from their bones. That is so interesting. But yeah, no, what they would do is essentially, Victoria mentioned this, but people are very seldom buried six feet down. Generally, it's about three and a half feet. Even today for green burials, that's about the depth for most burials is three and a half feet. They are going to dig up the head of the coffin, break through the top, and generally they would put either a rope or a hook of some kind around the neck or underneath the arms, depending on how far they had dug in and the size of the person and haul them right out. The other big thing is you don't wanna be caught with a body in grave clothes. So either a shroud or whatever they were buried in because it makes them identifiable. And it's very clear that you pulled them out of a grave as opposed to saying, hey, we just found this naked dead man in a gutter. (laughs) This is so bizarre. Which I don't know about you, Victoria, but it happens to me all the time. (laughs) all the time, you know, just past them all the time. This brings me to, in 1881 here in Atlanta, there is a woman that dies. Uh, She's 22 years old. She has two children and she lives on Elliott Street. And so her family wants to bury her at Oakland, but they end up putting her in the, what's called the Old Thurman Burying Ground. Don't know where that is. It says near Oglethorpe Park. So that puts it in what's West Midtown now. Um, it's where the exposition was. But it's so interesting. They they like knew she was going to be taken kind of. So they like, they bury her. The husband asks for a guard to be placed, but they couldn't afford a guard, you know? And so, and you and I talked about this earlier, like big cemeteries just don't have that capacity. So what it sounds like they did is they put sticks, like a booby trap so that they could tell it had been disturbed. And then one or two days later, the family goes back and it had been disturbed. And so the husband had tied a a ribbon around her neck and the ribbon was there. So that made me think about that. I mean, I guess if you took that body with that ribbon, they would know who it was, but all that this family found was like a pile of dirt with an empty coffin with a pink ribbon in the dirt, which is so sad. It is. And it's one of those things that I think that, that, that this was often an assumption and people were very aware of this. You can see that there are different things. Um, probably the, the most famous, I actually sent Victoria a picture of this the other day, was the Mort safe. Yes, which looked like a lobster trap for lack of <laughs> yes. a better word it looked like a coffin shaped lo- lobster trap and what they would put that over the coffin yeah so over the fresh grave to essentially oh, slow you the- down oh. from trying to dig into the ground and they're often marketed like falsely as like containing zombies or to stop vampires from rising no it was to stop people from getting in not for people from getting out so would they put it on top of the fresh dirt or kind of half in there I think the way I have seen them is is it's on top, but like secured into the ground. Okay, that makes. Oh, I see where you're saying. So they have to, they'd have to dig that part up to yes. get to the fresh dirt. To get Essentially, the body out. that somebody would see that, and it would take enough time to dig around it that it would okay. discourage them from going in there. Not necessarily that they couldn't get it out, but they're going to go for somebody else's grave because it's going to deter them just enough. So this ties into the Atlanta stuff because it all it's all the same story here. Um, Like Liz said, we had the Atlanta Medical College, which I think was right before the Civil War, or 1850-something that it was started, and it needed bodies. And so 1879 is the first time I saw grave robbing pop up, and it happened in Oakland. Black woman who lost her child. So have you you come across children being 
body I, snatched. From what I can see, everybody's yeah, favorite. Yeah, it's which that was extra disturbing. But I guess I mean you'd have to do surgery on kids too, so you'd have to see different. Also, things. if you consider just infant mortality rates and oh, overall yeah. child mortality rates in the 19th century, you're going to have a lot of a lot of bodies. That makes sense. Okay, so she had her her child buried at Oakland in the pauper section, um, and she just like had a feeling her kid was stolen. So she actually hired men to dig up the grave. And then yes, when they got there, basically there was nothing in the ground. And so, I mean, it sounds like the city of Atlanta gets very up in arms about it. The Judge Hillier makes a comment where he's like, we must be guarding the cemeteries. But this is where I kind of found it funny is that Oakland Cemetery, which again is the first, well, first municipal cemetery, 1850, they really did beef up their security. Um, In the 1880s, in 1881, there's like two more incidents where, um, and actually a distraught husband, uh, a couple lost their baby. The husband and wife are divorced, which is very uncommon for 1880, right? Like, right, yes. I I, so I think that they were an officially divorced, but they were living separately. And she actually goes to Oakland, finds the sexton and says, listen, my husband is going to come get this baby's body. He's, she's like, I'm just telling you. And she was right. And then days later, he actually went and robbed his own child grave. I think mostly this was medical student stuff, yeah. but I think there's probably, like you said, tying into that Victorian obsession with death stuff. I mean, he, t- he took the child's body with him and then went to live in Chattanooga and like never saw him again. So, and that's when... It sounds like Oakland really beefs up their security because there's a constitution editor from like 1881 that's like, you couldn't pay me to go into Oakland at night um, because I'm going to get shot. So it sounds like armed guards. No, and it's it's understandable too, though, because I mean, it was a very profitable trade. I mean, this is a time when if you made $20 per week, you were doing very, very well and you were getting paid $25 per body. Really? So it's incredibly profitable. So I can see that a cemetery that is being regularly robbed, it's worth the extra security and it's definitely worth that because it's going to make you more attractive to people. To want to be buried there. Absolutely. That makes sense. There was also... In the 1880s, here in 1880, exactly, there was like a back and forth editorials with one of the physicians is like, hey, listen, you know, grave robbing is terrible, but there is no legal way, kind of like you were saying, there's no legal path for medical colleges to get a ac- an accurate supply of bodies that we need to do our work. And so if we can't advance medicine. So a lot of doctors were saying, if you want us to be better surgeons or better doctors, if you want the U.S. to be on top, you know, like, we need to do this. And this is something that, like, it goes back to the very core. I was really interested when I did the research for this that in 1830, they actually ordered a special report on this to the House of Representatives. The U.S. The U.S. House of Representatives. And people, again, came at it from both sides. And... They cite, you know, France as being an example where they had already kind of given this type of access to bodies so that they could do that. They weren't quite really ready for it here. Um, But one person said, quote, who would not prefer were his own feelings the only ones concerned to be useful even after death to his survivors rather than to fester and decay, to feed the numerous worms and undergo the slow and disgusting process of chemical decomposition. (laughs) So beautiful. It was it was it was a great quote. But you know what changes a lot of this? And this is kind of surprising in Atlanta that 
it doesn't happen right away is the civil war is what changes this. It changes federal attitudes towards this because the majority of men who died in the civil war did not die from violence. They died from disease. And people saw that disease was preventable and they understood that if we understand pathology, if we understand the origin of disease, we can prevent it. So I think that that really changed people's attitudes where, you know, they're seeing, you know, not that their loved one died from a bullet, but that they died from typhoid or cholera or things like that. And if we can use bodies to better understand disease, we can prevent it. That makes total sense. So that made people be more on board with donating their bodies or, or other people's bodies. <laughs> other people's bodies, yeah. I, <laughs> other I think, I think it's, a, it's, a slow, it's a slow transition, but I think that you really can't overstate the impact of the Civil War on pe changing people's attitudes. That's really interesting. So there's one more, there's one really good story indicator I want to cover before we kind of talk about the laws changing. So this is January of 1886. And, and this is actually maybe a question, and I don't know if this is an actual thing. Is it, would, were generally the sextons of cemeteries in the South black men? Was that common? It's pretty fairly common, yeah. And then why was that? Just like, I mean, almost the same way that the railroad was always rebuilt by black men after the war. Was there a thing or that just, it just happenstance? I think a lot of it has to do with it being a not terribly desirable job. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and it depends because I know that, um, for example, at Oakland, if you do an analysis of the people who were working there, a lot of it had to do with geography. And a lot of it was new Irish immigrants and it was people who lived in places like Cabbage Town that could walk to the cemetery. And so a lot of it had to do with the neighborhood. But I think that in general, it was an attractive job probably for somebody who was a newly freed slave. So this is Decatur Cemetery, but what happened was there was a black name, his name was Israel Sanford. Um, he worked at the Atlanta Cottonseed Oil Mill, which I haven't figured out, I haven't looked that up to know where it was, but he got crushed between two rail cars at the West Point Depot. Um, so he dies in a kind of a tragic death, but he is indigent. I guess he has no family to pay for his burial. Um, they sent him to Decatur, Decatur Cemetery, and the sexton there is uh, Joe Smith. He goes to bury Israel and he tells mayor of Decatur or something where he was like, hey, can you be at this funeral? Like, I just, I just want you there as a witness. And the mayor is like, okay, I mean, that's kind of strange. Why? He's like, oh, you know, he has no family or anything. I just want you to just make sure he goes in the ground. And so apparently this triggers these like investigative questions. So the mayor is like leaves there and he thinks about it. He's like, why would the sexton want me to watch this? This is so strange. And it turns out Joe was trying to have a, an alibi. <laughs> so <laughs> Joe, I know Joe was um, contracting with a guy named George Vaughn. So jo George Vaughn is the janitor at the Atlanta Medical College. So the Atlanta Medical College was right across from Grady, the, the current Grady. It was across the street. And he was a janitor there. He made a deal with the Sexton and Decatur to get bodies for the medical students. So not too soon after Mr. Sanford is dug up and this kind of triggers this like, oh my gosh, what about the people we just buried? So I guess there was a guy named Simon Reed. Um, he was an old man, an old black man that had just been buried in God's Acre. They dig him up, he's gone. So it's like public outcry in Decatur, the mayor, the councilman, um, everybody's freaking out. Now, interestingly enough, they hire a group of black men to then dig up the graves to check. 
you know, so it's like they then hire a group of black men to go. They find Simon is gone. So then they pick two neighboring graves of, again, black paupers. One is gone and one is there. So they stop. They decide to move to a recently buried white lady um, to check that. Now, this is weird where they get down to her grave and I guess they put planks on top and the mayor goes, hold I was here for her funeral and those look exactly the way they did. So they didn't open the coffin. Anyway, so they kind of determined, okay, we're only missing three or four poor people. I guess it's fine. But I don't know. Everybody, so everybody's upset. Um, There's a whole story about how the black residents of Decatur are angry at Smith. They plead guilty. They very much thought that the Sexton was kind of the innocent party. And then this George Vaughn, the janitor, was like, you know, the evil conspirator because he gets like a thousand dollar fine. But this is where it gets really interesting. So Smith, who's the Sexton, goes to jail. He gets consumption. He is sick in jail. Um, He gets out of jail. He moves to Atlanta. His health issues get worse. And he just knows he's going to die. This is a year and a half later. And so he decides he wants his body to go to the medical college. (laughs) He wants to donate his body to the place he was supplying bodies. Um, So he dies in 1887. And he has no money for a burial. DeKalb will not take his body. And the college decides his body's not acceptable, which you kind of mentioned before. I think they wanted specific things. And so sometimes they're like, I guess we have too many of yours. So long story short, college didn't need it, but they felt so guilty. They paid for his burial. So he's at Westview. Really? Yes. And I have- That's great. I know. I have not gotten to the level of trying to figure it out. I mean, maybe he's in in the rest- no, not Rest Haven, or maybe he's in the part of Westview that we can't, you know, can't see right now. But I am on a mission to find him because the Atlanta Medical College felt so guilty about this whole thing that they paid for his Westview burial. No, and if I had to guess why they refused his body, it's because he had consumption. Oh, that makes sense. Why? They just didn't want to deal with the disease? or I mean, consumption... Which is tuberculosis. tuberculosis yeah. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> and, The Victorian yeah. names for diseases. So <laughs> and t- until the advent of you know, really solid antibiotics. I mean, you can't overstate how many people died of consumption. It was something that people lived in absolute terror of. So I can see 100% if you had somebody coming from a tuberculosis sanatorium or if you had somebody who was known to have an active infection that they would turn that body out. Even as a dead body, you could, oh, that's so interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, there was a lot of fear. Um, If you're really curious, um, my Halloween episode from last year was actually about this and about the link between consumption and vampirism. So uh, you can always go back and listen to that. Um, But yeah, no, it it definitely, I mean, consumption was a very real, real fear. And often the problem was that was why it raced through families because they didn't understand germ theory. Germ Uh, theory was still kind of in its infancy. But I, I wonder if when he asked the mayor to be there, he knew because the man had been crushed between the train cars that that was such a distinctive injury that they would be able to identify the body when it went to the college. Oh. Do you think maybe that's why? I don't know. I mean, from the way, of course, when you read the newspaper, it's written by a white person, you know, so there was some hard things to read, especially the way they describe this. Um, but I don't know. They, they made him sound guilty. as You know, they wrote it in a way where it was like, this was so he could have an alibi. And then, you know, in the dark of night. <laughs> so what it sounds like is they sent out like two detectives to to spy on them. And there they saw Vaughn and Smith, you know, creeping out of the shadows to dig up this newly buried body. And, and that started the whole chain of events. But so what's interesting is that like year before he dies, the Atlanta Medical 
a college puts out like a, a report, and we talked about these reports, where that's where I learned that apparently bodies are robbed here and shipped out to other colleges. They were just to send bodies across state lines. And they talked about this, I think, to say, you know, you should really talk to your lawmaker to give us some provisions for schools. And you said, is it 1887 that this yes. becomes a law? Okay, so let's talk about that because I think this is what happened in Georgia at that same time. No, and it's pretty sweet. It's all around this. I mean, I've seen it happen later in certain other states, but it, anywhere between 1885 and 1900, for the most part, the laws start to change. And so, like I said, the civil war is a huge influence on this, but it, it does take some time for people to adjust to this and for people to put these things in place. Generally, the entire concept of body snatching, it's done by the turn of the century. And it's because the laws that are put in place allow for all unclaimed bodies, bodies which uh, otherwise don't... So a lot of the bodies that were buried that came from the poorhouse or the almshouse and things like that prior to that had not been accessible. They were still robbed, <laughs> but they were not accessible legally. And this just made things a lot more accessible legally. Um, and then eventually attitudes changed to the point that we start to see today, people purposely donate their bodies yeah, to science. Yeah, that's so interesting. So the, so the law in 1887, I guess there was a house bill in Georgia that created like a state board. So there's a state board of officers that all the medical colleges in Georgia, however, you know, the two or three that we had, had a representative. The colleges are in charge of preserving the bodies which in, you said put in alcohol. At this point, they're still putting in alcohol. So at this point, yeah, because the fact is like once you embalm a body, you're, you can't really dissect it. Oh, so okay. a lot of it has to do with cold storage and things like that. Um, embalming really comes into its own during the Civil War. Um, Abraham Lincoln was embalmed and that's what popularized the idea. Oh, um, Lincoln being embalmed is what popularized? Very much oh. so because, you know, his funeral train travels all the way out to Illinois and it has multiple stops along the way. So the the change in sort of the politics of the body, you can really give Abraham Lincoln that. And really? his embalming was so impressive that, um, you know, when they were doing renovations to Lincoln's grave in, you know, in the 20th century, they reopened it and they said that he was still preserved oh, enough that you could God. recognize him. Really? Yes. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so they embalming has progressed. But if you want, obviously, a big part of embalming is that you drain the bodily fluids. Yeah, okay, so, I see yeah. what you're saying. So it's So different. they they can't fully embalm the bodies, but yeah, alcohol is the main preservative at this point. Okay, and so at this point, at least in Georgia, grave robbing becomes a felony when it was previously a misdemeanor. But then what I found kind of strange is like in 1941, the governor of Georgia makes like robbing graves punishable by death or something. So I mean, was there just... The fear totally went away. I mean, there's just no grave robbing, you're saying, after 1900 or... I'm not saying that it never happened. I just think it becomes far less common because the laws do start to shift in the other direction. Um, I think that you certainly, depending on where you are, keep in mind that we in this episode have talked almost exclusively about cities and attitudes in cities oh, are yeah. very different than say in a rural town in Georgia. Um, but also that's where the majority of your medical colleges are. I think that maybe at that point, they're shifting attitudes just based on the fact that it becomes more socially unacceptable. Or it's saying it's like, well, if you were to do this, there's a reason that you're doing this and you must Got be it. depraved. You're not doing it for medical reasons because you get it from a legitimate source. Which I think that's what I thought about grave robbing before doing this. You know, you just, I thought it was some crazed whack job digging up a body to, I don't know, perform some, but no, I mean... Not that they made it better, but there was a reason. It was to supply medical schools with, with bodies. I mean, it was a practical reason for it, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, and if you look at 
you know, I mean, we tend to think of medicine as being so advanced today, but we forget that, you know, the first open heart surgery didn't happen until World War II. And I mean, all of that research, all of the surgical advancements, they never would have been possible without this type of pathological research, without understanding how things worked. It's just so easy to forget that, you know, so much of what we have today, it's, it's really quite contemporary. All of this stuff is things that have happened, you know, probably within three or four generations. And, you know, we think about things that, you know, we survive quite easily that probably would have killed people. And that's one of the things I love about cemeteries is that without going through and digging through ledgers and having to analyze all of that data, you can just walk yeah. around and you can literally see the demographics. I agree. I mean, for me, a cemetery is a place to talk about broader things in one place. Like you said, you know, you you talk about different people, but you also talk about even just say Oakland and Atlanta because it's so popular, right? Different neighborhoods in there, different types of people. And then just looking at the dates, you know, oh, he was he was a child. Oh, she was only 20. I don't know. To me, it sparks conversation. It's one of those things that think about, I mean, we've talked about public health. We've talked about racial inequality. We have talked about legal issues. All of those yeah. things are legislation. I mean, yeah. we have, you're right. You're totally right. And uh, that's, that's one of the things that I think that people don't tend to think about when they think about cemeteries. Um, but it's important history. This in particular, because every single person listening to this has benefited from gross anatomy. Yeah. has benefit. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I know gross is sort of, yeah, it, that's what they call it, gross anatomy, study, studying cadavers. But we, we all have benefited from the understanding of pathology that came out of that. It's often important to remember that things aren't always pretty in our ha our history. I but like this. So you're necessary. saying we, we should be thanking the early grave robbers, the ghouls, <laughs> on Halloween. Uh, just, yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, this was all essentially brought us to the the place we are today with medical history. Very much so. I like this. I love Liz's podcast for this <laughs> reason. So I tell people all the time, if you are not a cemetery lover, like just the history nerds out there and there's a lot of cemetery or taphophiles they're called, even if you're not, this you're going to learn so much about all kinds of history, but through the lens of a cemetery. I also have a lot of people who, who get interested in certain topics. And so if you are interested in American history, you know, I have covered Lincoln. I have covered Washington. I have covered a lot of individual people. If you are interested in military history, I did a whole month on the history of military cemeteries. There's a lot of fun topics in there. Um, I try not to take myself too seriously. <laughs> and I have been trying to do a, f a few fun and somewhat spooky things throughout October. Yeah, we're, you know, we're not total drags. We just, we like the academic angle, but we have sense of humor. <laughs> and, and hopefully, you know, we promised at the beginning of this episode that these are all true stories. They're pretty good. Yeah. You have to admit. I agree. I mean, now when I, when I go to Oakland or Decatur Cemetery, like I have these extra layers of stories. And Absolutely. Like, and like you said, it was so much better than oh, they say this woman in white stands at the window. You know, like, I, I so much more like the story of these two guys plotting to dig up the people in the dark of night to sh shove them across town in the Atlanta Medical College. Uh, so tell people, I just want to make sure everybody can find your podcast, Tomb with a View. Tomb with a View, and I am on all major platforms. Uh, little turquoise icon, you can see it, it's a lady. 
Yeah, it's a a fancy it's a fancy cemetery lady (laughs) thank you all for listening i have all of liz's podcast information in the show notes please remember to leave me and her a rating or a review and i hope everyone has a great weekend and a great halloween and i'll see you next week